Well, hello, all you courageous cheetahs out there. Welcome back to another episode of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. My name's Casey. I'm one of your hosts. And this week, I am joined by a different voice. Do you want to say hi? Hi there. This is Kristen Latsky, who is doing an awesome job guest hosting for Sarah today. So if you're used to hearing Sarah's voice, Sarah is a crazy person and running a marathon right now. So we're giving her the week off to enjoy, I guess, loosely, um, enjoy running a marathon. Sarah, I know, or there we go. See, I'm already in, in the the (laughs) mode. That's how convincing you are, Kristen. Kristen, (laughs) I'll pretend there you go. Yeah. (laughs) Kristen, you you've run before, right? Like that's something that you've also done. Yes. I pretend to be a runner as well. I have never done a marathon. I have done one half marathon and it was kind of awful. It takes a lot out of you. So I admire Sarah greatly. Me too. She's like a run is really a generous term, but I am impressed by anyone who's willing to travel that distance on foot because I don't even pretend like that's not even anywhere within the realm of things I'm capable of. So very impressed. Good luck to Sarah in her running, but we're really happy to have Kristen here this week. How is your week going, Kristen? It is not bad. Um, so when we're recording this, it is the week after New Year's. And so uh, I was fortunate to have a couple of days off work. So it is difficult to get back into the swing <laughs> of things. So this week is um, going pretty slow so far, but it's not bad. How's your week going? It is going okay. I think watching like everyone around us start to have COVID cases crop up a little bit, been uh, mostly staying home, going to work, staying home. (laughs) So not super exciting, but lots of time to do some podcast research, I guess. So for all of you listening out there, Kristen and I met at the same place that Sarah and I met our last job. Um, and Kristen was part of our education team there as well. But Kristen, I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself a little bit to tell our audience about who you are and what your background is. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I grew up loving animals and I actually started kind of on the same journey that Sarah had. So I went to Purdue with the intention of going to vet school. I never made it that far. In undergrad, they said that loving animals was not a reason enough to be a vet. And they are 100% right. There's a lot more that goes (laughs) into it. And so to set myself apart for vet school, I did an internship at a zoo and um, learned a lot about animal behavior and conservation. And it was kind of a, a new world for me. Um, I'd gone to zoos growing up, but I hadn't really seen the kind of back end of things. And then after I had that internship, I kind of never looked back and I stopped my path to vet school and instead got a degree in animal science. I worked at a zoo for a couple different zoos for about three years as a zookeeper in total. And then decided to go back to school to get my master's degree. And since that was um, only part-time, I wanted to still be in the zoo world and got a part-time job in education department with Casey and Sarah. So I started, what, about a month after you did, Casey? Yeah. And then we met Sarah maybe a year after that. 
Yeah, that sounds about right. So Kristen and I had a wonderful work relationship and a great friendship outside of that. So I didn't have too many questions about who I wanted to ask to be a guest host for this week. Um, So I I think that's interesting that both you and Sarah started out on a vet path, because I feel like a lot of kids who are into animals oftentimes are sort of steered that way by adults in their lives. They're like, oh, you love animals. Why don't you become a veterinarian? Which is a really wonderful career path to go down, but very competitive, takes a very special set of skills and specialties. But I think that's interesting that you were told basically loving animals isn't good enough reason to do it. So I, I mm-hmm. actually kind of like that someone told you that. <laughs> that uh, yeah, it was um, eye opening for sure. <laughs> but there are so many other paths that you can go down that involve animals, whether it's working directly with animals or on behalf of animals in conservation. So uh, we're going to be talking today about a species that Kristen has been extremely passionate about for the last several years and has been involved in helping with some of their conservation efforts. So you know by the title, we're talking about cheetahs today. So stick around and we'll be back in a couple moments to talk to Kristen about the Cheetah Conservation Fund. All right. And we are back and we are going to talk to Kristen about cheetahs, um, which are some pretty amazing animals. And Kristen has had some experience working with probably the biggest conservation organization specifically focused on cheetahs, although it's not the only one, the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Um, So we'll talk first a little bit about cheetahs, and then we're going to talk some of the the office awesome work that CCF does um, and how Kristen's been involved with that. So Kristen, our listeners are probably pretty familiar with cheetahs. They're a pretty iconic animal, right? But I think sometimes folks get confused between cheetahs and other spotted cats. So can you describe to us a little bit about if you're looking at a cheetah, physically what they look like and what sets them apart from some of those other spotted cats? Yeah, absolutely. It can be kind of confusing. There are a lot of big cat species that are spotted. A couple things that set cheetahs apart Their spots do look different than that of like a leopard, for example. Um, So cheetahs do have solid black spots, whereas something like a leopard has what's called rosettes. And so it kind of resembles sometimes like a rose or a flower. So there's kind of an opening in the middle. They're not solid spots. But if you ask someone to show you leopard print or cheetah print, usually they'll show you the same picture. (laughs) Um, So it is pretty similar. But I think that the greatest difference um, between cheetahs and other spotted cats is probably their overall size. Um, So they are a a pretty small cat, even though they're considered a big cat. Um, They're usually only around 100 pounds or so, which is generally pretty shocking when someone has never seen a cheetah in person, you know, even at a zoo. Um, They are much, much smaller than you might think they are, especially compared to something um, like a leopard or or a lion, you'd find both of those in Africa, where you would find cheetahs. Um, they're those kind of big cats are outweighed hundreds of pounds compared to the cheetah. Yeah, I think that cheetahs they're like polka dotted, right? That's basically their pattern. Yeah. Is they've got three thousand solid black dots all over their bodies. They, I think, for me, not just the size, but also sort of the shape of their body 
is different from other cats and also very indicative of their lifestyle. So really tall and lanky, very narrow body and head, correct? Absolutely. I like to think they're super aerodynamic. Yes. <laughs> they're built for speed as everyone knows. And so they have to have that slender body. They can't have a bulky body because it's uh, harder to run with all that weight and, and size. Yeah. Think about like a greyhound's adaptations are very similar to a cheetah's versus like a Newfoundland might be a little bit more of a stocky, bigger build. And that's really what lions are built a little bit more like they're stockier, they're heavier and lions can be over 400 pounds compared to that hundred pound cheetah. Um, so that aerodynamicness helps them with their greatest adaptation. So what is that greatest adaptation, Kristen? What do people know them for? They're built for speed. That's what they're known for. And that's what all their adaptations are, are aimed at for sure. Yeah. They're really incredible animals. I think that's an easy trivia question to ask kids who are into animals is what's the fastest land animal on earth. And it's the cheetah. Um, so really awesome animals, but what personally drew you to cheetahs, Kristen, how have you, how did you get involved with cheetah conservation and what drew you to those animals in the first place? Well, they are the coolest animal ever. That's why, um, it's like the prove me wrong <laughs> meme. I feel like, you know, you got the, the prove Fight me wrong me, guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Change my mind. <laughs> Change my mind. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's me sitting there saying, change my mind. Um, <laughs> they are super cool, but, um, I grew up loving cheetahs. I was kind of born into it. None of your listeners are going to believe me, but my uh, maiden name is cheetah. It is not spelled like the mammal, it's got a crazy German spelling, but it's pronounced cheetah. And so growing up, I, I always was associated with cheetahs and we had, you know, cheetah figurines and those decorative plates all over our house <laughs> and that kind of thing. We, my mom still has some of that stuff up. And so I grew up loving cheetahs and thinking they were super cool. Cause it was kind of uh, a part of me. It was, it was who I was. I went to a pretty large high school. And I had a, a pretty small group of friends, but being in sports, some people knew who I was and a lot of them just knew me as Cheetah and they didn't even know my first name. So <laughs> I've kind of been um, associated uh, with the word Cheetah for uh, a long time, but I didn't really go beyond that until college. Um, I mean, I thought they were cool, but I, I really didn't know anything about them besides they were cool and they were fast. But the founder of the Cheetah Conservation Fund actually came to speak at my college. I think it was my senior year, my junior or senior year. So 2011, 2012 or so. And hearing her speak was kind of mind blowing. Just learning about their adaptations, their habitat, and then, you know, their conservation status and things like that uh, just really got me interested. And then after I graduated, I went on to work in zoos and passion for conservation just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. I, nothing like uh, having your last name be the same as an animal to be like, that's my team. <laughs> I'm right. Yeah. That's, that's a really cool connection. I sometimes forget about it because I've always known you as Kristen Latsky, but then mm -hmm. when I think about that origin story, I don't think that there's a stronger origin story for like identifying with an animal than to say hey, that was my last name. So these are animals that live out generally mostly on the African savanna, although there are some that live in Iran and they, like we talked about, are 
incredibly speedy. That's what they're well known for. You talked about their bodies being maybe smaller than people expect is are there other things that you think might surprise our listeners about cheetahs? Sure. Um, one of my favorite things to share, just like my little nugget of trivia that I like to share are they have some really cool vocalizations. Um, usually when you think of a big cat, you think of them roaring or growling or doing lots of loud noises, but cheetahs are a little bit quieter. They've got some kind of quirky little noises. They make, they make some chirps. Um, they can purr, which I think is super cool because um, you just think of your house cat as, as purring, but um, they do have the ability to purr. And so I think that's super neat, just kind of a, a little quirk. Yeah. I think they're, would you say like they're pretty expressive animals? Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. They definitely bare their teeth, pull up their lips, widen their eyes. They're, they're pretty expressive for sure. They'll, they're not afraid to tell you how they're feeling. Uh, we worked with them a little bit because we did do a cheetah chat. Mm-hmm. And so we were not in with them, but in close proximity to them. And, and I feel like they always told you how they felt. Um, they could do some spitting, sure, as well. <laughs> they weren't feeling uh, the moment. Yeah, they definitely, they tell you how you feel. Yeah, they're, they're very expressive. I think that's a really good one because I don't always think about that because there's other, I'm in like adaptations nerd, I guess. And I, I think about it's more of the sciencey angle to it, but I do think that that's something that is like extremely delightful about cheetahs and surprised a lot of people that I've been around to who've been around the cheetahs in that kind of context is like, Oh, they're basically talking to you. They're letting you know how they feel and they'll talk to each other. And they, uh, they're a little bit more expressive. And I think that that, uh, the kind of situation that we're talking about is when they were coming down to feed close to guests, they are not very confident cats, right? They, that was something that surprised me as these are animals that are predators, but maybe not the top predator on the savanna. They are a little bit shy. What do you think the advantages are for cheetahs being a little bit more shy? Like what might that get them in their natural habitat? They're definitely a little bit more reserved. That's kind of built into their nature being a smaller cat, they kind of have to be that way. Um, so like we said, they're built for speed. So that fight or flight response, they're going to run. So if they're in a situation where there's confrontation, um, if they were to stand up and fight, they could get seriously injured. Um, and if they injure a paw, for example, I mean, they can't run and, and that's how they survive. And so being reserved is a good instinct for them. It really keeps them alive. Yeah. If you can think of like, you know, two boxers squaring off and one's a lightweight and another's a heavyweight, the lightweight might realize that one shot is going to knock them out, that it's not worth having that fight. They'd rather be able to fight a different day. Um, so cheetahs are really successful predators. The males will hunt cooperatively with their brothers. The females typically are uh, solitary when they reach adulthood, but if they catch food, which they do a pretty successful, about 50% of the time, they have a pretty high rate of other animals trying to steal it. And most of the time, if they're going to try and steal the food, the cheetah is going to have to back away, which I thought was really interesting because you think of a big cat as being like one of the most confident animals on the savanna. But if you're like a big cat, that's actually a little cat compared to a lion, maybe, (laughs) maybe that's a, a good judgment to make. The other thing, again, I am a nerd when it comes to the science element is cheetahs have a genetic bottleneck. Kristen, could you explain to our listeners who might not be familiar with what a genetic bottleneck is basically what that 
concept means. Yes. So thousands of years ago, there was a, a bottleneck, meaning that there was kind of a, a mass die off of mammals, including cheetahs. And when you have a large portion of your population uh, that is wiped out, you're left with fewer individuals to breed and produce offspring. Um, since you have fewer individuals, there's fewer genetics to choose from. So that kind of can cause some issues if you have a smaller genetic pool. Yeah, this can force the relatives to start breeding with other related animals of their same species, which we've talked about in our wildlife and roads episode, when you cut off those populations from other members. And if you start having heavy levels of inbreeding, it can cause a whole host of issues for that species. A wild fact that I found out just yesterday from the CCF resources that you sent me is that every cheetah alive today is as related to each other as identical twins. And that is mind-blowing. <laughs> That's pretty intense. It's a little crazy. depressing as well. It, it is super depressing. So yeah, around the time of the ice age, something like 75% of mammals died off during that uh, time period and the other species of cheetahs did. And it might've only been, you know, a couple families if that, that survived and just life carried on. But with having that closely related <laughs> genetic pool, that can cause some issues. So what are, what is the issue of genetic bottleneck? What, what is that resulting in, in their population? Oh, well, that gives you the greater opportunity to pass along negative traits. So we won't get into too many details because if you took a lot of biology classes, you remember doing all those genetic oh, crossings and things. Yeah, yep. yeah those. Yep. <laughs> um, there's just a greater likelihood that you're passing on genes that maybe aren't as good. Something like for males being lower sperm count than you normally would have is, is something that you just struggle with right now. And that's due to the lack of diversity in the, in their genes, really. That's just one example. Yeah. Another issue is susceptibility to disease. So even like, let's say within a forest, there's a bunch of different types of trees. Um, but if you have a pest that targets one of those types of trees, like let's say the emerald ash borer, it can take down all of the ash trees, but the forest remains because there are other species of trees within it. If the cheetah population is so uh, genetically similar, if there is a disease that comes through that is really impactful for cheetahs, it could potentially wipe out all of them. Uh, so it's possible. <laughs> yeah, it's a little scary. Um, we do know that cheetahs can get COVID-19, but we know that it's not necessarily like that's not hopefully knock on wood going to be the disease that that does them in, but they do get symptoms similar to ours to that. But that is another issue with having a genetic bottleneck, but it's not their only issue that they have out in the wild. And we'll talk a little bit about that. What is the status of cheetahs right now out in the wild? So cheetahs are classified as vulnerable. In the last count, there was about 7,000 adults left, which is not a whole lot. And that count was done a, a few years ago yet. And it's definitely not a stable population. It's, it is still decreasing. And so they definitely need our help. They're struggling a little bit since they have lost a lot of habitat. That's stuff I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more in detail, um, but that's a, a big reason as to why they're declining. Yeah. They, they're found in 19 
African countries, and Iran. So imagine 7,000 animals spread across that wide of a space. It's just not a lot of animals. I always think like if, if that amount of individuals could fit into like a football stadium, that's not enough animals. Right. Um, so, uh, so 7,000 is not a lot. And basically th- 7,000 twins is not a lot of numbers or genetic diversity. Um, to compare this historically, so you might think like, oh, well, you know, cheetahs, they, they have a lot of issues to begin with. Like uh, they've got this genetic issue that maybe, maybe humans aren't really responsible for that. You should think about that genetic bottleneck having happened 10,000 years ago. And just 200 years ago, around the 1800s, there was an estimated population of a hundred thousand cheetahs. So this is actually a very recent decline. This is not just the inevitability of genetic issues. This is something that humans have a huge part in. So, uh, cheetahs, even in the last 40 years have had about a 50% loss in their population. So really this is a timely issue and it is an issue related to human behavior as well. So Kristen, what issues are cheetahs facing? Why are there so few of them? Yeah. So I kind of just mentioned habitat loss and really that's due to their habitat being converted into something else. So most of my knowledge is uh, Namibian cheetahs, and that's where the highest population is, is in Namibia, which is a country in Southern Africa, way far down near South Africa, not to be confused <laughs> with that country. Yeah. Whip out your maps so you can see yeah. what we're talking about. Take yep, a look at your maps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Namibia, a lot of the habitat there has been converted for agriculture use. So that could be sheep and goats. They do have some cattle game farms as well. So they're encountering, you know, things like livestock and farmers, but they're also encountering fences between private property. Um, And these could just be very thin wire fences that they could get in and out of, but then some of the things like the game farms do have very, very tall, intense fences that keep pretty much anything out. And so that fragments their habitat quite a bit. Yeah. I think something to think about is here in the States, we have prairies and prairies are actually very similar habitats to savanna habitats that we might associate with Africa. They're big grassland areas. And we did the same thing here. We converted most of our grassland habitat over to agriculture. So for us, we grow a lot of crops here and in Namibia, they are herding lots of livestock through that area. So this causes some well, I, I guess I, I should start here. About 95% of cheetahs living in across Namibia, South Africa, Botswana, and Zimbabwe, which if you're looking at the map is most of the Southern tip of Africa are on agricultural farmlands. So it is, they are are not living in what we like to think of as the wild, right? Yeah. The wild is, is sometimes kind of a fluffy concept. Maybe you think of the Lion King. That's what I think of sometimes. And it, it just doesn't look like that. And they can exist in that space for sure, but it can cause some problems. Yeah. I, I think what I've come to as myself is that the wild is largely a fake concept. It is something that we like to think about in faraway places existing in some sort of pristine sort of way, but you know, wilderness has always been impacted by humans. A lot of places we consider wild have 
folks who are indigenous who are living there and have lived alongside the animals that live in that landscape. Um, lots of the animals we consider wild animals like cheetahs, you would not think about being like farm pests, but that is what they are kind of considered in that area. Right. Um, so Mm -hmm. with that habitat loss, human wildlife conflict. So do you want to talk more about that? Yes, absolutely. So, um, Cheetahs are a diurnal hunter, meaning they hunt during the day. And that is a specific adaptation because most other larger predators hunt at night. And so they are avoiding competition from those larger predators that they cannot compete with at all. And so uh, if a farmer is out surveying their land um, and they see a cheetah, they might think it's a threat, whether it is or not. If they, if the farmer comes across, you know, an injured or even a deceased goat and they see a cheetah in the distance, they may assume that uh, the cheetah killed that animal um, and it could have, or maybe it didn't kind of thing. And so there's a, a lot of retaliation that happens if there's losses to, to livestock there's trapping and poisoning and, and things like that, shooting that can happen. And then there's also things like preventative killings. So they don't want to lose livestock in the future. And so they will get rid of cheetahs if they see them on their property type of thing. And so um, there are a lot of predators in Africa, a lot of things that can be injuring or killing livestock. But since cheetahs are out during the day, they do get blamed for quite a bit that may or may not be um, their fault. Yeah. And again, focusing back on the States, I remember going out to Colorado and going horseback riding and talking to some farmers out there. And they had very similar feeling about the wolves that lived out there is seeing them as a threat to their livestock. When you look at large scale studies, we find that wolves are not generally responsible for as large a assumed loss as the farmers might think, but that perceived threat is enough to be a threat then to those predators. Um, and you might think, well, why don't we just make big wildlife preserves? Why don't we just cut off special places for the cheetahs and the farmers can have their place and the cheetahs can have their place and it'll be okay. But as we talked about, cheetahs don't live alongside, they're trying to avoid those other big predators. So when we protect those big areas in national parks or wildlife reserves, and they have the lions there and they have, which is another species that is often killed as retaliation for coming after uh, livestock, you have this like quote wild space, that concentration of those big predators drives out the cheetahs out into those other areas where they have less competition and less of a direct threat because lions and other predators will kill their offspring, right? That's a huge issue for cheetah populations. So this sort of issue is not unique to cheetahs, but I think the solutions sometimes are unique to the people who you have to work with in the area. And so that's something that has really struck me about the Cheetah Conservation Fund. But one last thing that threatens cheetahs that we haven't quite talked about yet is the illegal wildlife trade, right? Yes. Um, and you could do a couple whole podcast we episodes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll jump back on for that. Um, we could, we could do a whole episode on illegal wildlife trade just for cheetahs. Um, so it is a major issue. Um, so buying, selling, exchanging cheetah parts or even, uh, live cheetahs. So they are trafficked for, you know, parts and pelts and things like that, but 
even more so, there is a market for cheetahs as pets. So historically, having a cheetah in some parts of the world was kind of seen as a sign of status, as a sign of wealth. Some people still believe that. They used to be kept as hunting companions, not even too terribly long ago. And so there's still a lot of people out there that think a, a cheetah would make a good pet. And um, so they are confiscated usually as cubs and it doesn't go very well. There's a very low survivor rate for a cub being in that situation, being taken away from their mother uh, at a very young age. It, it doesn't go very well. So that just leads to more cheetahs being taken because not many are surviving and it's kind of a vicious cycle. Have you working in a field where you've been alongside people who don't necessarily know a lot about animals? This has happened to me, but have you ever had somebody ask you, how can I have a cheetah as a pet? Yes. So working in the education department at the zoo, you get that almost every day, no matter what animal you're standing near. Yeah. Um, and I, I get it. Um, if you are seeing an animal, especially one you've never seen before in person in front of you, and it's a really cool animal, you want to connect with it. You want to touch it. You want to have it in your home. Um, you want so it I understand to feel that way about you. I feel like yes. that's part of it is this like reciprocal relationship where to you, love you. Yes. You want it to love you. <laughs> and then like, it's, it somehow transcends this like ownership level too. It's like this connection. What have you found as an effective way to talk to people about not having genus as pets? It's kind of the same with, with any uh, wild animal is that it's very expensive. They have very specific care that they need. And um, your house is not a natural environment for whatever animal, whether it be a cheetah or an orangutan or, you know, a, a parrot, it, your house is not where it needs to be. It, it's natural instincts take over and, it, and it's not going to act like your dog or your cat at home because it's not a domesticated species. Yeah. And again, we want to hammer here, hammer home that um, we are talking about an illegal wildlife trait. Cheetahs are typically protected in their range countries and they are on the endangered species list here in the United States. So there are lots of laws regulating who can have cheetahs. The zoos you see them at have to have particular licenses to be able to have a lot of the animals that are there. I have also found for people who really are connecting with this animal talking about how their decision to take home a wild animal impacts the ability of that animal to exist in the wild at all. I found that that's been a effective conservation tool as well to say, yes, I get it. Like to, to you, if you immediately shut people down, a lot of times they, uh, don't want to listen to you. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have to sort of validate that sort of feeling that they're having because it comes often from a place, not always. I've also had people who see animals as objects and don't see any sort of value in the like individual. But, uh, but I think what you're saying about like making sure that they know that they can't provide the proper environment for them, but also that, Hey, I, I get it. But even if that was a good thing for the animal. This, we just don't have a sustainable population for them. So illegal wildlife trade is something Sarah and I have talked about covering a lot. And I really want to 
it's such a wide issue for, it's one of the top threats to species around the world. And I think if, if we do episodes about it, it's going to have to be so narrow, like, like illegal trade of cheetahs, illegal trade of songbirds, like you can't cover <laughs> because there's so many reasons for people to traffic them. Um, but okay. So we've covered the sad stuff. Cheetahs, only 7,000 of them left. It's not so great, but there are amazing organizations that are working on behalf of cheetahs. And as I said, the largest one and the one that you've worked with is the Cheetah Conservation Fund, who, which was started by Dr. Lori Marker. And can you tell us a little bit about that organization and what they have done for cheetah conservation in generally Namibia, where they are located? Yeah, so their main facility is in Namibia, but they do work all around the world, really, um, especially with their education efforts. They just not too terribly long ago celebrated their 31st anniversary, I think. Um, So they've been around a, a little while now. And they've grown tremendously over those 30 some odd years. So in Namibia, they've got a facility there that's um, very, very impressive. They've got a a pretty decent sized uh, research lab. They do a lot of genetic research since we had talked about the status being so bottlenecked. Um, They do their best to kind of track all they can. And they do non-invasive methods most of the time. So they do a lot of scat research. They actually have a scat dog that they train on site. And that just kind of blows my mind, the things that dogs can do. (laughs) So they're helping cheetahs out there in Africa, detecting different individuals. They've got a a very nice education program there where they have space to bring groups in and they do a lot with school groups. They bring in uh, farmers. Uh, They do adult classes. They do a whole lot. They've got a little museum there that talks all about the cheetahs and um, organization there with different artifacts. One of the coolest things uh, I think they have is they have a model farm. And so they actually raise goats there on site and they have it kind of as an example for people to see how to kind of have a predator friendly facility. And what I mean by that is respecting your herd and having your herd of say goats, for example, and protecting them without harming the native predators in the area. They also, they want to make sure to use all they can. So they have a creamery on site as well, where they make goat cheese, soap, ice cream, all kinds of stuff. And then they sell that and it just goes directly back into CCF. So it's kind of a a closed loop there. So they're using all the outlets they can. And then with that model farm, they do have livestock guarding dogs, which is a huge part of their operation, not only for their farm there, but they also want to share that uh, with their community. So they do breed livestock guarding dogs and they do sell them to farmers in the area to uh, protect herds. And that kind of situation can be found really all over the world, guarding dogs. They're used all over, even here in the States. Yeah. If if you've seen like a great Pyrenees, which is a big, very fluffy dog, um, Anatolian shepherds, Kangle dogs are all examples of livestock guardian dogs. Thinking of those livestock guardian dogs, two things come to mind. Um, one, the first time I heard that they sell the dogs to farmers, I was like, why don't they just give the dogs to farmers? Because cheetahs, (laughs) that's their goal is to save the cheetahs. The way it was explained to me basically is that if you given the dog away for free, 
the farmers basically don't trust that it has value to them. Like they're like, well, if you're giving it away for free, why should I care about it? Like, it's obviously not that important. So the cost of the, the dog is not an exorbitant cost, but it just basically confers that this animal has value and it hangs out with the herd basically is like, I am goat too. must protect goat family. And if anything scary comes up, they start barking for most predators. That's good enough for that predator to get out of Dodge. Cause they have no interest in a conflict with a giant barking dog. And we're talking like really big dogs, like a hundred to 150 pounds. Right. Kristen huge dogs. Yes, absolutely. So scary for anyone or basically anything that you would find out there. Right. And so just having it be there, they've seen lots of reductions in livestock mortality because they have these livestock guarding dogs. And so having farmers see real success in these programs that are alternatives to going out and poisoning these cheetahs is a really amazing kind of concept, obviously not the only, like, as you said, the only place in the world that's doing this, this is not like an organic idea out of the CCF, but it is applying principles that have been used for thousands of years to just this population in Namibia, which is super cool. And one of the things I like a lot about CCF is that the main goal is cheetahs, but they, by helping cheetahs really help all sorts of animals within the ecosystem. So it's not just cheetahs who are benefiting by livestock guardian dogs. That's also jackals. That's other large predators like leopards who might be in the area. And so I thought that was really cool. They're like, this is not just like incidental either. They're, they're really trying to help preserve an ecosystem, not just a species. Absolutely. And that definitely includes people as well, uh, which I really appreciate about the organization. They're looking at the whole picture um, and making sure the farmers are taken care of as well, because the farmers do not see the benefit of having cheetahs around. They have no incentive to protect them. Um, so that's a super important part of the whole program is to look at kind of the overall picture of the entire ecosystem. I think it kind of harkens back also to what we were talking about with the pet trade is that people who want cheetahs as pets are not like we, we shouldn't paint them with one broad brush that they are inherently bad or evil people. And I think that's important to keep in mind anytime there's human wildlife conflict as these are farmers trying to make a livelihood in a situation that basically we've done here in the States just maybe much longer or in a more industrialized fashion and done the same thing to our wildlife. Um, so being able to have solutions that the CCF brings to the table for these farmers to succeed and for wildlife to succeed is really the key because it's, it, it, it's not sustainable if we, we lose out on having buy-in from those local folks. So I think that's a really incredible part of that relationship. I know they also have created a system to help preserve the savanna habitat too as well, right? Can you talk a little bit about Bush Block? Sure, absolutely. So they have a, a program called Bush Block. So CCF creates kind of uh, biomass fuel basically looks like a, a log, uh, a small log. Um, and they make that out of um, native bushes that are in the area. So they are native, but they are very aggressive. And everything in Africa has spikes on it. All the plants are <laughs> spiky. And so um, if you have a lot of spiky bushes throughout your savanna, it's kind of hard for the cheetah to run through it. So while it's not an invasive plant, you can clear some of that out 
in order to provide a little bit more space for the cheetah to hunt, for example, to run. Um, and so CCF has developed a method of harvesting some of these bushes that are impeding uh, the habitat uh, of the cheetah. And they will kind of press them down into almost like a log that you would throw on your fire. And then they sell that as fuel locally. And then they have started shipping it to other countries as well. So um, it's kind of a, a cool use of natural resources, but you're also helping the cheetahs. You're helping the local economy. It kind of goes in a, a bunch of different ways. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, in, in under normal circumstances with an intact ecosystem, large herbivores like rhinos and elephants would be naturally grazing on a lot of those things. And that's really what keeps the savanna intact. Like it, it's always sort of at risk of these woodier bushes and trees coming up and converting that savanna land over into more of a forested area. So it's cool that they've kind of come up with a solution that replaces the absence of those large herbivores, um, and ends up making it beneficial in other ways, because then, you know, you still have a fuel resource and they can make money to help save cheetahs. So win, 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 win. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You have been to Namibia. So you were describing their facility there. Um, but can you talk about your trip to Namibia and the cheetah conservation fund facility there? Yes, absolutely. So I went a couple years ago, it was amazing. So um, I did go as a part of my master's program. So I kind of had the option to do a small study abroad, if you will. So I was there for almost two weeks or so. And um, the specific program that I did was focused on cheetah conservation specifically. So it kind of fit right in with my studies because my degree is in biology, but I was able to focus it on cheetah conservation and education specifically. So that trip was right up my alley. (laughs) So we um, visited the facility and, and we did research there and we helped them with game counts and we visited um, all the different aspects that I just described. Um, And it was really life-changing. I mean, amazing wildlife, amazing scenery, lots of new foods for sure. So that was, that was fun. But I think the most important thing out of the entire trip was just gaining perspective. So it's, it's sometimes hard for me, like cheetahs are an amazing animal. They're my favorite animal, obviously. So I have to kind of sit back and realize that not everyone will just want to conserve cheetahs just because they're cool. Like for farmers in Namibia, there has to be a benefit. And um, we spoke to multiple farmers while we're there. And the phrase that one of them used was, if it pays, it stays. So it has to pay for them to conserve the cheetah. And so that's what uh, Dr. Marker and CCF are doing is they're working with farmers to to help them see the benefits since there are a lot of um, economic benefits to having predators in the ecosystem. If you, just one very small example, if you removed cheetahs from the ecosystem, something like jackals, their populations could increase. So it's nice to have that balance. And so working with locals to Namibia um, and, and getting their perspective on the ecosystem, on cheetahs, and, and hearing their situation and, and hearing their struggles was 
really the, the best part of the trip, but it was very helpful. And it definitely kind of changed my perspective on how to talk to people about conservation. That sounds genuinely wonderful. I, I think that note that like people who are hardcore into animals can sometimes forget myself included is that it's not always just like all of these animals have the right to be here, just like you and me sort of situation in depending on your life context, maybe you can afford that attitude and maybe you can't afford that attitude. I also think that being able to go there and talk to those farmers, I'm sure for you is also sort of reassuring in a way, like for me, sometimes conservation organizations do some stuff that you're like, I'm taking your word for it. (laughs) You know, like uh, you're saying you're doing these things, but I don't necessarily know what way we're going about working with local people. I don't necessarily know how effective it's being. So I think that's so cool that you got to basically hear it straight from the folks most affected by this issue, um, that this is a successful program for them. Are they looking to replicate this program other places? Are they just like focusing on ensuring that strong population in Namibia? Do you know any of that? I know you're, you don't work for CCF, but you work with CCF. Uh, hashtag dream job. Um, I do (laughs) not, I do not work for them. Yes. So most of their work is in Namibia since that's where their facility is. Um, but they are branching out and they do work with other conservation organizations. Cause like you said, there's, um, quite a bit more um, that do work with cheetahs. So they work with other organizations and they do have uh, a facility in Somaliland, which is further north. So they have a small facility there because something that I didn't even mention, they do so many things, do rescue and rehabilitate cheetahs as well. They have some at the center that cannot be released for medical reasons. And so they're kept as ambassadors. They have uh, rescued, rehabilitated and released probably hundreds of, of cheetahs at this point. And so that facility in Somaliland is, is that's their main purpose, I think, is a, a facility where they can hold rescued cheetahs and there's some back to health. And again, big deal, 7,000 cheetahs out there. If you're like even dozens is a pretty sizable percentage when you're looking at one conservation organization in one country. So that's pretty amazing. Um, not everyone gets a chance to go out to Africa and do cool things like that, but you have done amazing work here in the States as well. So you, can you talk about your work with the Indiana chapter of CCF and the work in your master's programs that you've helped to support cheetah conservation with? Yes, absolutely. So I did a couple different projects during my master's program. Um, I was fortunate enough to work directly with CCF to publish a paper during my master's program, which was uh, a, the number one goal in the whole program. Um, was to be published. So I I took a a course on publication. And so everyone had to submit something. It didn't have to be to a scientific journal, but uh, that's what I chose to do. And so I worked with CCF to study social media education and what was engaging, uh, what time was engaging day of the week and that kind of thing. So I worked very closely with CCF in their digital content team to publish that paper. And then since then, have been deeply, still deeply involved. And we do have a local chapter here in Indiana. And I was fortunate to actually be one of the founding members. So myself and two other individuals started it um, quite a few years ago. Now, we all were those crazy cheetah loving people that they have this cheetahs have this intrinsic value that we were talking about, and we have to save them. And so 
Uh, we started working here in Indiana just to do a couple education events a year and a couple of fundraising events. And then that money goes directly to the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Um, and I just thought it was a super cool thing that from the middle of Indiana, you can help impact the conservation of a species halfway across the world. So we did, uh, we've done restaurant fundraisers. We've actually just finished up a virtual race for the Cheetah Conservation Fund. So I ran a only a 10K, Sarah. As only. <laughs> I only did a 10K, Sarah, but six miles is still a lot. <laughs> oh, so much. <laughs> I didn't run the whole thing. It was more like a slow jog, but, um, did, so you guys like don't that. have to qualify. You're like <laughs> running to me. I'm going to be impressed regardless. It's good exercise and I don't have to have a, a gym membership. So there that's what I do, but there's lots of, uh, cool events we have done. Uh, Casey, you actually helped with one a couple mm-hmm. years ago. It was so fancy. We did a gala for mm-hmm. cheetah conservation and Dr. Lori Marker was there. So yeah, it was, it was a really cool event to be a part of. That was like, you're talking about doing educational events at restaurants and things that folks in the general population can help out with. And the cheetah gala was one of those like fancy people, high dollar sort of situations. So that was a really cool kind of peek into that, how that world worked. You had an auction and I think you uh, helped like put together some artwork for it. So really cool stuff that you've done. Super fancy. And we have a really nice picture from that event. You should share yes. it. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'll do. Oh, that's what I'll use as our, our share. Yeah. And uh, we've got a good one. I'll have to put our friend Olivia who helped out with that as well. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we're going to post some, Kristen sent me some really cool cheetah photos. So we'll post those up on our social media as well. So you've done all these really cool things. You are a conservation professional, but you really did most of these things not operating as a conservation professional, but really in your free time as a volunteer. How can ordinary people help the survival chances for cheetahs in the wild, whether that's through CCF or just in their general actions? Yeah, uh, just in your general actions, supporting, you know, accredited facilities that have cheetahs. Um, just general things, doing your research before you visit any sort of animal facility, whether they have cheetahs or not, is always a good thing. Not posing with animals for pictures kind of thing. We talked about some of that stuff before, but just sharing information. So CCF is just one of many organizations that support cheetahs and, and wildlife, but um, sharing some of those kind of articles on your social medias, sharing with your friends as a very attainable thing to do. If you do specifically want to get involved with CCF, there are chapters all over the world. So if you go on uh, their website, it's just cheetah.org. So that's super easy to remember. Um, You can search for the chapter closest to you. So there are quite a few in the States, but um, a lot of countries have them as well. And so you can see kind of what's close to you if you'd like to do uh, work with them in person. But there are a lot of virtual options even before pandemic life. Um, and that's really how I inquired about volunteering as I was interested in doing virtual volunteering because at that time there was not an Indiana chapter. And so they connected me with those folks and we created one, but there's um, graphic design you can help with, running online auctions, things like that, creating content from their website and social media posts. So there's 
limitless options. If you'd like to lend, you know, just an hour or two a month, there's not kind of a requirement for, you know, 150 hours a year or anything. It's, it's really whatever you can give. Um, but I would definitely, if you're interested, see if there's a, a local chapter and there's some cool events near you, hopefully. Yeah. And you said uh, in our outline here, when International Cheetah Day is, everything has an international day, guys, but this is an important one. When's International Cheetah Day for our listeners? Put it on your calendar. December 4th is International Cheetah Day. That's generally when there's lots of content being pushed out by CCF, uh, but they also have events. And International Cheetah Day has its own website too. And a lot of people will log their events on there ahead of time. So you can search to see if there's any little celebrations or activities happening around you. But even if you just shared information on that one day, or there's that option where you can make your, a little frame around your Facebook picture, yeah. there's options for CCF frames for International Cheetah Day. So just doing that for, for the day, it helps bring awareness it, you know, helps people inquire about cheetahs. It's not a species, um, especially people here in the Midwest think about very often, um, but you can definitely have an impact from no matter where you're at. Thank you so much, Kristen. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for today's episode or should we move on to our challenge? I mean, I could talk about cheetahs all (laughs) day long. (laughs) Longest cheetah chat ever. Longest (laughs) cheetah chat ever. Okay. Well, stick around guys and we will be back in a moment with our wrap up slash challenge. All right. Welcome back. If you're not familiar with a little greener every week, we try and issue some sort of challenge related to our topic of the week, something that's an attainable thing that folks can do to either get more information, do something that helps out with conservation, being more sustainable. And so I know I have one for this week that's kind of general. So Kristen, if you have your own to issue, please let me know. But, um, pretty easy. Uh, The website for Cheetah Conservation Fund is cheetah.org. They could not have made that any easier, cheetah.org. And they have amazing resources on there. Whether you're like a super nerd like me and you want to read all sorts of cheetah, like scientific articles, those are available on there. Or if you just like, I actually need to see what a cheetah looks like. (laughs) I need to be reminded. I need to see some cool photos and learn a little bit about just how cheetahs live their lives because we didn't actually cover that extremely in depth today. So there's lots more to learn. So you can go on there and you can see updates on what CCF is doing and maybe make a donation if you've got that uh, extra cash after Christmas. So uh, Kristen, do you have any extra challenges for our listeners? The only thing that I might suggest uh, making donations is not always feasible for everyone, but you got that Christmas money. I mean, that's a a good gift helping out cheetahs. Um, Something that I do personally is if you make any purchases on Amazon, uh, CCF does have an Amazon smile account. And what that does is uh, your purchases, um, a percentage of that will go towards the charity of your choice. CCF is on there. You just uh, search cheetah conservation fund and it'll 
pop up when you go to Amazon Smile. It's no additional cost to you. So it's kind of a, a nice little kickback. Um, and then you can track how much you've kind of donated and how much each organization has received every year. So I think that's a cool one that doesn't cost you anything, but you're still kind of making a donation. Yeah. So if you've decided you are team cheetah, you, that's your animal. This is what you want to focus maybe for the year. Cause Hey, we, we talked a little bit about new year's resolutions and then didn't cover it. As Kristen pointed out, she's like, did I miss an episode? Did I miss something <laughs> that happened? We're, we'll talk a little bit more about it. I just thought maybe you guys were a little holidayed out because we really dug into the holidays deep, but, um, one of your options for a new year's resolution might be focusing on one particular conservation issue and seeing if you can dedicate it to a few dollars, whether that's through like a rounding up program or putting all your spare change into a jar or through Amazon smile. So if you're into cheetahs, that's a really great way to help support them. Thank you so much, Kristen. I know that this is something that you've never done before. It's your first podcast. We have, uh, officially inducted you within the little greener guest host space. So I really appreciate you coming out and doing this and taking over for Sarah for the week. Well, thank you for having me. I could never, ever replace Sarah, but I am excited to be here and it's good that I can see your face. (laughs) So it's good to see you and chat with you. And I mean, I'm glad I got to talk about my favorite animal. Yeah. I'm glad that we had this cool opportunity. So if you guys have any questions for Kristen, any additional ones, any follow-ups, if you want to learn more about like a particular conservation organization or have experience kind of working with one, reach out to us. We can be found at a little greener pod on Instagram, a little greener podcast on Facebook and at a little greener pod at gmail.com. Oh no, don't email things, I guess. Cause I forgot what our email is. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a little greener podcast, a little greener podcast. There we go. At, at gmail.com. gmail.com. <laughs> I always make Sarah do it. Cause I never know. <laughs> well, like, if oh. you got my photos, then it's a little greener podcast at gmail.com. A little, there we go. That's see, Kristen's doing a great job. Filling, filling in, in. <laughs> filling in. I do what I can. Yes. Uh, I hope you all have a safe week. Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.